Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mike Springston FFC Podcast, where we coach you in the Word. We're glad to have you from wherever you're downloading and listening. We want to welcome in South Korea, uh, who uh, has downloaded uh, today. We appreciate you. Uh, hope all of those of you that are downloading our material are being blessed by it, and it creates and stimulates thought and uh, becomes something that will not only bless your life, but if you are also in ministry, that you can use to uh, bless your church. Um, I want to remind you that you can contact us at springston56 at gmail.com, mikespringstonministry.com, ffcma.org, or through Family Fellowship Chapel's direct messaging. I want to remind you of our book, I Surrender, uh, Amazon, or in in your local bookstore. Today we're going to pick up from uh, the book of Joel, chapter 1 and verse 9, and the title of the message is The Condemnation of a Deluded Message. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We pray that you'll open our eyes, that we could see, our ears, that we could hear, and our heart, that we can understand what the Word of God says to us. And then, may we apply it to our lives so that we can be changed into the image of your dear Son. Jesus, we surrender, yield, and sanctify ourselves to you. We ask you to speak through the Holy Ghost and show us what we need to know, do, understand, and demonstrate. As you do, we'll receive it. And we'll release it to your people, and from there we'll be corrected, we'll be blessed, we'll be led and guided in to truth. We ask it all in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, our Lord, and our man in the Godhead. Amen and amen. So we're beginning today with Joel chapter 1 and verse 9. And uh, uh, The reading says, The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. So we've seen Joel's prophecy concerning what was going on in the land in verses 1 through 8. He gave a warning to spread the message. Then he began to speak concerning the devastation that was in the land. Wake up was the initial message. Now right here I want to say something that I think must be heard and understand, understood. In our country right now, we have a tremendous division, um, a division of the races, for instance. And when Mr. Ford... Floyd, rather, Floyd, was indicted with regard to the Donald Trump indictment. The African American is the only man that was not given the opportunity to post bail. So he sits in a jail in Atlanta, Georgia today, and I have a question. And that question is, where is Black Lives Matter? Where is Black Lives Matter? This man was posed as a flight risk. Where is Black Lives Matter? We have another Floyd who is sitting as one of 19 indicted who is in jail today. 18 men let go 
but one man who happens to be African-American left sitting in a jail cell because a judge refused to offer bail. Because as she says, he's a flight risk. Where are you, Black Lives Matter? Why aren't you protesting in the streets? Have you been bought off so that one of your own can be left to sit in prison? Where are you, Black Lives Matter, with your indignation? Yeah, wake up. That's the message of Joel. Wake up. Wake up to truth. Wake up to right. Wake up to fairness. Wake up to doing the right thing. Wake up to being a voice of the people. Wake up to just doing the things that you said that you were about, except all of us who have followed you know that you are not about your people. You are not about fairness. You are not about right. You're about doing what you're told to do. And that's a sad indictment. While a man sits in jail, when 18 others have been let go, sad. Wake up. That's the message of Joel. They're laying waste to the vine and stripping you of your position while they take away your effectiveness and eliminate your power. They do this with the illusion of great force and the illusion of great power. Why are they doing it? Because they were allowed to strip you of the things that you needed to be effective and powerful. They simply have laid waste to the vine. Once the message became diluted, it became condemned. Once it was condemned, it was of no use for its intended purpose. So we come to verse 7. Now, I want to ask you a question before we go there. Do you believe in the irresistible grace? The theory of irresistible grace. That means if God determines that he's going to save you, your resistance to what he wants will be overcome by his irresistible grace. If so, then you believe in election and predestination. This means that God chose those who would be saved before Jesus died for their sin. Is that really what you believe the message of Jesus Christ teaches? Are we convinced that God predestines some and eliminates some? Well, that is the mechanism of which our society is operating right now. God predestines some and eliminates some. That's why we see that there is no consternation, there is no protest, because obviously, because of political alignment, one man has been left to remain in jail. We're convinced then that in the natural realm, in the human realm, that man predestines and man eliminates. Man chooses a narrative. And from that narrative, everybody on the opposite side of that narrative is eliminated. Is that what you believe? Well, I want to tell you something, church. That's what we've taught. And because we've taught it, we now see it acted out in our inner human relations. We see this concept of election and predestinations acting out, 
not by Christian people, but because of Christian people. We must consider this, and we must own it. When we begin to teach the concept of irresistible grace, the devil took that concept and put it into a narrative. And that narrative is that you are predetermined to either be on our side or their side, and if you're on their side, you're eliminated. You're canceled. What a sad commentary. Because the church is at the root and the backbone of the problems that we see in our society. And we, you, you as a church do not desire to take that on. You would say, oh no, we didn't do that. Yes, you did. When you began to teach irresistible grace, you begin to separate and eliminate by election and predestination you put planted the seed of a message that the devil picked up on and now our entire society is operating not from the concept of irresistible grace but from a concept of a narrative that predisposes one and eliminates another. What a sad commentary. This is what the church has done. This is what Joel is saying. He's saying, wake up. Are we convinced that man can draw the boundary lines because of who controls the political arena? Are we convinced that man can determine the content of speech because of who controls the political arena? Is that what this is all about? Where did it come from? Well, it didn't come from any place else other than the doctrines taught by the church. The devil took them, the devil developed them, and the devil has now used them directly against the house of God. Now, we, we teach the message of irresistible grace. Every time we share the idea that Jesus has done it all and the grace is our means to him regardless of our lifestyle. That's what we're teaching. Now the world has taken that, they've engrafted it into their own, and they've created narratives. And those narratives slice and dice until they divide people. And they say, you're either with us or you're against us. And their divides either place someone in the fold or eliminate them and cancel them. Now there is the opposite school of thought of which had we held to it, we would not see the divisions that we see in our country. There is grace that is available and can be obtained by one by the use of his free will to accept what God's grace has done. In this concept, man has responsibility and accountability to God for responding to what he has done in Jesus Christ. Grace, of course, can be quenched by rejection. Salvation, the product of grace, can be lost by grievous sin or not maintaining the standards of faith. So, what is it you believe? Some would say, I believe in irresistible grace because I don't think one can lose their salvation. By believing in that, you say you can live how you want to. You can predispose 
and eliminate whatever of the Word of God you desire to eliminate. You can design and devise fables concerning how you believe the Word of God really reads. Now, we look into our world and what do we see? We see narratives that devise fables to make the culture and the society say and do what it is they want it to say and do. The church did it, friend. The church is responsible. The church is the culprit. And we might as well come around to it because until we change our narrative, until we begin to speak truth from the word of God, nothing, nothing is going to change in our community, in our society, and in our culture, and in our world. Why? Because they are living out the doctrine of which you have taught them. What a sad commentary. You say, but I don't believe in predestination or election. As you can see, we've mangled the teaching, and in so doing, we have condemned ourselves. We've mangled it until we've condemned ourselves. We have mangled it until the devil has taken it and reproduced it in lost ones living in darkness until they are designing fables of narratives that place themselves to be able to live in the way they want to live and then back it up with a narrative. So your next question should be, what should we believe then? When we read the scripture, it's quite clear how the plan of God works. Man fell, and that separated him from God. Man was promised a savior. Jesus came and was the legal sacrifice that atoned for all the sin that was affected upon man by the treason of Adam. The treason of Adam caused man to be in complete separation from God, so the legal sacrifice was required to solve the separation. As the sacrifice occurred, blood fell on the ground. In the blood, which was for the covering of sin, grace was exposed to mankind. Mankind has been provided with the source of the vine, which is grace. The gift of faith is given by God to man to coordinate with grace. Man chooses to accept the work of grace by faith, or to reject the work of grace by reliance upon himself. When grace and faith are used, the Holy Spirit is released into the inner man, and the new birth occurs. Man chooses how to operate grace and faith. This choosing is indicative of how the Holy Spirit works in that life to reprove sin, to reprove righteousness and judgment. Man lives after grace and faith to grow and mature in the fruit of the Spirit. Or, man stunts the growth of grace and faith by practicing sin. After reproof, the work of the Holy Spirit uh, for the man who falls back into sin retreats due to the actions of sin. Man then returns to the position of separation from God. He must repent. There has been predetermined now a mechanism for man to be restored. He confesses his sin, and Jesus, who is the righteousness of God, 
is both righteous and just to forgive us of our sin. He becomes our advocate concerning the matter of sin. 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. This is not irresistible grace, my friend. This is a grace of light. If we say that we have fellowship, now watch it now. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We don't see irresistible grace being taught here. We see a cleansing grace. We see a grace that purges and a grace that refines. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our message of irresistible grace has now been turned on us by the society because they now have an irresistible message of a narrative that puts people on opposite sides. It is man's choice to accept grace through faith which leads him to the direction of the Holy Spirit, who is convicting and convincing him of what must be done to eliminate the stain that sin has caused. It is his choice to reject grace and faith and subsequently reject the instructions of the Holy Spirit. So here is the biblical context upon which we must understand the doctrine of salvation by grace. It is the coordination of something that God has done in Jesus Christ through the six works that began at the cross. It is then the acceptance and understanding of that work that leads us to receive grace by faith and pursue the source of the spirit of life that's in Christ Jesus. So he did something, and then we had to correspondingly also do something with an action that consummated the deal. This verse is the result of what Joel is speaking in verse 6. For a nation has come upon the land, my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. Here we go. They have turned our irresistible grace message into a predisposition of a narrative that has great power, strong in number, teeth of a lion, cheek teeth of a great lion. Where did they get that message from? From the false fable of irresistible grace. It's happened because of all of the preceding occurrences, of course, that Joel has mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. Remember when we dilute the message of the vine, we bring condemnation upon the hearer. We bring condemnation upon the hearer. How does that happen? 
because we teach and preach a message that's not a true representation of the actual intent of the message. In effect, we turn godliness and righteousness into ungodliness and unrighteousness. Wasn't this Paul's message in Romans 1? This verse of Scripture presupposes one spiritual act as having been attempted by the priests. In verse 7, or 9 rather, that act is the act of execution of the blood sacrifice. This was the first act accomplished for the covering of sin in the tabernacle. Then came the meat offering. It was an offering which took for granted and was based on the offering of sin, for sin. It followed the sacrifice of blood. It was presented every day with the burnt offering according to Exodus 29, 40, Exodus 29, 41. Consisted of flour or of cakes prepared in a special way with oil and frankincense. So the meat offering was offered after the blood offering. It was the offering that was presented under the idea that the blood had covered sin. There is where our church has gone off the rails. We've operated under the idea that blood, irresistible grace, combining with blood, covers sin to the point that you can live in sin, that you can have a narrative of wrong, and that you can still be called Christian. Now they've taken that and they've turned that now to a narrative where Paul said wrong is right and right is wrong. It was the offering that now supposed the sovereignty and the blessing of God because there was no sin to impede its acceptance. There was no sin to impede its acceptance. The meat offering was offered after the blood offering because there was no sin to impede the ability for the meat to be accepted. So that, so those who are asleep and stuck in the routine of their tradition of once in grace, always in grace, an irresistible grace, their doctrine, a dogmatic doctrine of a way of living and calling yourself a Christian or living in a narrative that is wrong and calling it right. These are being devoured by their enemy. Sin has overrun the blood sacrifice and therefore the blessing sacrifice does not work. So why are we weak and powerless? Why are we sick, blind, and beggarly? Why are we broken and in bondage? Because our sacrifice of sin, for sin, has not been accepted. We cannot move forward in the process of blessing because the initial stage has not been done in a way that pleases God. The work is diluted. And the result of a diluted work condemns the offerer. So when we say there is therefore no condemnation, are we giving an honest representation of the message that Paul was producing from the gospel of Jesus Christ? Look at Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. I would make special emphasis on the term in, in Christ Jesus. 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Look at the Scripture and ask yourself this question. How much flesh remains in me? How much flesh have I crucified? How much flesh do I still seek to satisfy? Have I ever mentally and emotionally buried the flesh? Now there's going to come a point as the Lord releases me that I'll teach you on why Paul spoke to carnal Christians in 1 Corinthians 3. We will conclude that they had not repurposed their soul and therefore they were fleshy in their actions. Then how much spirit do I speak? Now before I go there, I want to tell you, there is a message that you need to hear concerning the repurposing of the soul. And I'll bring it to you one of these days shortly. How much spirit do I seek? How much spirit do I follow? How much of his spirit do I choose to walk after? Now watch this. If we see this, we understand the undiluted message of truth. If you sacrifice the flesh, if you walk after the satisfaction of the Spirit, if you are in Christ, then and only then are you walking free from condemnation. Love does not make you walk free from condemnation. No, no. Being in Christ makes you walk free from condemnation. Then and only then can you move into the next phase of development and worship correctly. Verse 2, Romans 8, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The sacrifice has made me free as a new law has been enacted upon my life. The law of the Spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus has made me free from the old law of the sin and death. I am no longer condemned because I am no longer captured by the old law. If I live in a deluded law of messaging that speaks a lesser truth, then I am condemned by the lesser truth just as condemned as I was by having no truth at all. So as Joel prophesied, the sacrifice was not acceptable. So the things that were to follow were shut up for use. Sin has taken on the authority over the fruit of the vine. What a tragedy. The drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers mourn. Because the sin offering is not acceptable. Because the pursuant meat offering cannot accomplish its desired effect, the drink offering cannot be poured out to create the desired smoke and smell that pleased God. It's cut off from the house of the Lord. I said it's cut off from the house of the Lord. This brings a condition of mourning to the Lord's priests because they recognize the importance of the process concerning the welfare of Israel. Now, do we recognize the importance of the process of correct doctrine as it relates to the welfare of the church? 
Do we recognize the importance of the correct truth and doctrine as it relates to the welfare of America? I think on both cases, the answer to that is absolutely not. But without this process being followed, Israel, the church, America, would not be blessed and would not be in a position to be pleasing to God. Here, my friends, the ministry mourned. They mourned for the people. They mourned for the church. They mourned for the culture. They mourned for the society. Often, some preachers will come up with what they call prophecy and begin to give you a prophecy that exposes how God's going to change it all. Not until the sacrifice gets right. Not until truth is preached. Not until the doctrine is brought under the word and the teaching of the word of God. The ministry wants to give you good news. So therefore they prophesy good news. But my friend, the ministers in Joel's day could not prophesy that good news and they mourned. They were mourning. Today's ministers, however, they just go along with the people. They tell you about the love of God and the good times that are to come. They see blessings through a completely different and new lens. For the priest in the days of the tabernacle, sacrifice, they saw the blessings in all of these areas. They saw, and I'm closing, spiritual position, spiritual protection for the people, spiritual protection for the presence of God. If you remember the structure of how the tabernacle was surrounded and defended, they gathered the warriors on each side and they were over 1,200,000 eyes that protected Israel. Their standards were available to become a flag that told Israel of any impending invasion. And we have put up a false flag, my friend, and the devil took that false flag and turned it against us. Father, I pray that you'll minister to your people. That you'll open our eyes, God, so that we can understand we should be mourning because we have disingenuously transplanted a message and that message now is being acted out by satanic powers of darkness. And we're in the middle of it. God, I pray that you will open our eyes so that we can see, our ears so that we can hear, and our heart so that we can be changed. And then, God, somehow may we apply it to our lives until we can know truth and be changed into the image of your dear Son. Father, I thank you, I bless you, in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, who is our High Priest, our Lord, and our Man, and the God in. May God bless you. Find him as Lord. Bring all of the things of your earthly gatherings, lay them at his feet. There as plunder, they will all come under his exalted name. Find him as the Man in the Godhead, and he will speak to you. Out of his speaking will come things that you must know. I pray blessings upon you until we speak again.